ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Eric Anderson, and joining us on the show today is Dr. Casey Luskin, Associate Director of Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, here to talk to us about the brand new book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions About Life and the Cosmos. Dr. Luskin holds a law degree from the University of San Diego, BS and MS degrees in Earth Sciences from the University of California, San Diego, and a PhD in Geology from the University of Johannesburg, where he specialized in paleomagnetism and early plate tectonic history of South Africa. Welcome, Casey. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be on the show with you today. Yeah, glad to have you. So I was noticing that your bio says that part of your role at the Center for Science and Culture is to assist scientists, educators, and students who seek to freely study, research, and teach about the scientific debate over Darwinian evolution and ID. So it sounds like you're the perfect person to talk to us today about this wonderful new anthology, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Uh, First, give us a little bit of background about the new book, if you would, Casey. How did it come together? What was the goal of this book? Yeah, and it's great to be on the other side of the microphone here, Eric. We've been doing a lot of podcasts with contributors for the book where I was the host, and it's nice to be able to talk about the book a little bit here. (laughs) Well, sure, and you're a contributor too. I think you've got three or four chapters, so glad to have you uh, with us today. Yeah, so the book started actually while I was in South Africa doing my PhD, and a scholar named Joseph Holden, who's sort of a longtime friend, contacted me about contributing to a book called The Harvest House Handbook on Apologetics. And I wrote a couple chapters in there on how to advocate intelligent design and the problems with Darwinian evolution. And actually, Steve Meyer and I co-authored a chapter in that book on how Christianity and religion played a positive role in the rise of science. And I'm very proud to say that some aspects of that chapter actually ended up influencing some of the early chapters of his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. So Mm. that was a really enjoyable thing. But I was friends with uh, Joseph Holden, and I would say maybe it was around 2018, he asked me if I would be interested in co-editing a larger anthology focused on intelligent design. And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) I was in the middle of a PhD at the time. I didn't even have time to read the newspaper every morning, much less edit a book. But I said, this sounds like a really fun idea. So how about if we put it on hold until I'm done with the PhD, and then we could see if we can make it happen. So we did that. And meanwhile, we added Bill Dembski as a co-editor. And the plan was sort of that as soon as I was done with the PhD, we would start inviting contributors to start writing chapters and we would start compiling things. So they were really itching to get going. And I don't know if listeners know the story, but basically I finished writing my PhD thesis in March of 2020, right as the coronavirus hit South Africa, literally was told, my wife and I were told we had about a week's notice to get out of South Africa and flee back to the United States or we could get stranded abroad indefinitely. And I literally finished up my thesis on the plane flight home from Dubai back to the United States. Mm. I put the finishing touches on the thesis. I submitted it from an airport hotel and Joseph Holden and Bill Dembski knew about that I was returning and it was time to get going on the book. So they were literally sending out invitations to contributors while I was on a flight back to the United States. So when I landed here and finally, you know, back, got back online, my inbox was full of all these emails to wonderful people saying, will you write a chapter for the comprehensive guide to science and faith? And thankfully, 
I'm really excited. We got a wonderful lineup of contributors to the book. A lot of great people wrote chapters. I mean, listeners can check it out for themselves, but we have Stephen Meyer who wrote the foreword, three chapters by Bill Dembski. Uh, we have chapters by Michael Behe, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, John West, Gunter Beckley, Brian Miller, Michael Agnor, uh, Jay Wesley Jay Smith, Jay Richards, Guillermo Gonzalez. I mean, the list just goes on and on. There's a lot of other great folks I'm I'm forgetting to mention. So I'm really happy with this book and the way it turned out, Eric. Yeah, yeah. And you've got a couple of friends of ideas as well. Uh, Fuzrana, Hugh Ross also contributed. Yeah, Fuzrana and Hugh Ross wrote fantastic chapters on the fine-tuning of the universe and human origins. I don't want to leave them out. We really had a great set of contributors to this book. Yeah, so this is a pretty big volume weighing in at some 600 pages. It might seem a little intimidating to some readers at first, but in looking through the table of contents, it looks to me like a very readable volume. There are lots of short chapters, each addressing a specific aspect of science and faith or evolution and intelligent design. So it looks like a pretty readable approach. What's your hope for this volume as readers approach it? Yeah, our, our hope is that this book would serve as a primer for many people who want a very broad yet deep and concise introduction to the issues related to science and faith. I appreciate what you said, Eric, that the chapters are very readable. I really feel that way. Most of the chapters are only six to eight, maybe nine, 10 pages at the max. They're very readable, and yet they give readers a like a briefing style treatment of important topics. And in fact, each chapter title is written as a question. So for example, how should we defend intelligent design or what is intelligent design or does the fossil record support Darwinian evolution? They're all written to basically answer common questions that people have. And you'll get the answer in anywhere between six to nine pages from a qualified expert. And then you too can be an expert because the chapters are written uh, with a lot of detail. You'll get just some packed information. So I feel like it is a book that can really help get people up to speed on the issue very quickly. Our hope is even that if you were, say, teaching a course on science and faith at a uh, religious university, that this book could serve as a textbook. It's just got so many topics that it covers. You know, you've been involved in a lot of book projects over the years. And from the table of contents, as, as I look through that, you mentioned, hey, it looks like a great resource for people who are new to the issues. What about old timers who've been around for you know 20 years in this debate? What, what's new and valuable about this volume for them? I do think it has some interesting chapters that have not been uh, dealt with topics that have not been dealt with a whole lot. Guillermo Gonzalez has a chapter on panspermia, where mm. I think he makes arguments I've never seen made regarding some problems with panspermia. Robert Marks has a wonderful chapter on artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, I edited all 600 something pages of this book, so <laughs> I got familiar with what's in it. And Robert Marks's chapter on, art, on AI is one of the best uh, and concise treatments of the subject that I've seen. I learned a lot just editing it. Michael Egnor has two chapters on consciousness and the mm -hmm. origin of the mind. He goes through some of those experiments where if you took psychology as an undergraduate and they were trying to convince you that this experiment showed that uh, we don't actually have a soul, we're just nothing but meat machines yeah. in our mind. He tackles those experiments head on in his chapters and shows why they really don't refute free will or the existence of an immaterial soul. Those are some arguments that he's made elsewhere, but I've never seen him put them all together 
in such a concise treatment like this. So there's other chapters as well that I would say are novel. Um, I've got a chapter that outlines the positive case for design in a more detailed way than I ever have. I'm actually working on turning that chapter into a technical paper right now because it, it broke a lot of new ground for me. And one of the nice things about this book is Bill Dembski, as I mentioned, has three chapters. I remember in 2015 when Bill said he was retiring from intelligent design and I left for South Africa, the, the Darwin lobby on the internet was sort of crowing, saying, oh, look, Bill Dempsey and Casey Luskin abandoned intelligent design. <laughs> Bill's abandoned it. Casey's quit. <laughs> Casey's quit. Yeah. Casey gave up. Couldn't take the heat. No, I mean, none of that was true. I went on to do other things and actually so did Bill. Bill wanted to go explore some other interests that he has and develop sure. some businesses that have been thankfully very successful. I wouldn't wish success on anyone more than Bill. And in, in response, Bill feels now he wants to return back and do some intelligent design work. I know Bill still has other interests. I don't think he's going to return full-time to ID. He's got a lot of different irons in the fire. That's great. Very happy for him. But we're this is sort of Bill's uh, coming back party. And in a way, so, so it is mine as well. And so read Bill's chapters in this book to see his latest thinking on intelligent design and appreciate the fact that he never changed his views about ID. He always was fully supportive. And, and this is just a, a, the latest uh, positive evolution of his thinking. Yeah, that's great. So there's a lot of a lot of new material, and there's also some updates from the folks who have, you've heard from before. If you've been around the debate for a long time, this is a great resource to kind of have a stake in the ground. Here we are in toward the end of 2021, and kind of an updated resource or reference book, really, in a lot of ways for all of these different issues and questions that so many great authors have talked about over the years, and all the new material as well. I want to put in just a shameless plug, uh, Casey, if you don't mind. I, I think this is a pretty affordable volume, too, for a detailed reference resource of some 600 pages. I think it's $30 for the paperback and even less, 22 or something, for the Kindle version. So really affordable for the amount of material that you get here and all the great contributions. So definitely encourage listeners to go out and, and check out the book. So I want to jump into um, one of your chapters that you contributed to, this chapter 15, which is titled, what is intelligent design and how should we defend it? What was your goal, Casey, in writing this chapter? Thanks for the really kind words about the book, Eric. The chapter that I wrote on what is intelligent design and how should we defend it was sort of a, an updated version of a chapter I contributed to a book that was edited by Sean McDowell titled Apologetics for a New Generation. And the original vision for this chapter was to help somebody who sort of is maybe a, a newcomer to intelligent design, but interested in science faith issues, sort of get them up to speed on intelligent design, what it is, and help them overcome some common challenges that newbies face in this debate. So example, common objections that they might face or tactics that the other maybe critics will use or ways that people try to shut down the discussion. How can you navigate those tricky or heated objections that people sometimes receive? And then also articulating why intelligent design is a better approach compared to some other viewpoints, such as sort of the theistic evolution view or some of the flavors of creationism that are out there. Why do we think intelligent design is a good way to approach the issue? So trying to help a newbie, newcomer to the debate sort of navigate the issue. Yeah. So let's dive into a few of those things. So for many of us who have already put a lot of time and energy into intelligent design over the years, it might seem like it goes without saying, but for a newcomer to the debate, you lay out, Casey, a very basic question, which is how do we decide if it's worth taking the time to even bother investigating and advocating for intelligent design? What kinds of questions or considerations can help us decide whether this whole issue of intelligent design is important? 
Yeah, exactly. And you're right, Eric. I mean, those of us who have been around this debate for a long time, it's easy to feel like, oh, these are old hat issues, but a lot of folks are trying to come to terms with them. So the first question I say people need to ask is whether intelligence design is true. I mean, obviously, if intelligence design isn't true, if it isn't a good argument, then we shouldn't waste our time with it. Why would we? I mean, we want to advocate truth to, the, to our friends and our colleagues in the larger world and the scientific community. So that's the first question. But then if ID is true, we then have to ask ourselves whether it's important enough to be worth expending the effort to defend against what sometimes seems to be a very powerful opposition. And we need to ask basically, is, is ID important enough to be worth advocating? And those are the, if you can answer yes to both questions, then you know, keep reading the book basically and, and, and move on uh, through and, and, and learn more about ID. Great, great. So, so what's the most basic case for intelligent design as somebody's trying to learn about ID? What's the basic fundamental case? Sure. Well, I explained that intelligent design is based upon finding what we call high levels of complex and specified information in nature. Roughly speaking, something is complex if it's unlikely, and it is specified if it matches an independent pattern. And I give a few examples in the chapter. Of course, the most famous one is comparing Mount Rushmore to some naturally shaped mountain like mm -hmm. uh, Mount Rainier. So Mount Rainier has a very complex and unlikely shape, but there's nothing special about it. It doesn't match any pattern. Mount Rushmore, on the other hand, it also has an unlikely or complex shape, but it matches the pattern of the faces of four famous presidents. So Mount Rushmore is an example of complex and specified information. So what ID, what ID theorists hypothesize is that basically ID predicts that we will find high levels of complex and specified information in nature. When we find high CSIs, it's often called the best explanation for that is intelligent design. And we can test for high CSI through various types of mutational sensitivity tests or genetic knockout experiments or theoretical calculations can allow us to look at natural systems, especially biomolecules like proteins or DNA, and determine whether they contain high levels of complex and specified information. And when we find that high information-rich content, we can then conclude those structures were designed. To summarize it, you know, that's a little bit technical, but let's just boil it down to the essence. I would say the last 50 or 60 years of scientific research have shown that life is fundamentally based upon a vast amount of CSI encoded in a biochemical language in our DNA, a computer-like system of information processing where cellular machinery reads, interprets, and executes commands that are programmed into our DNA, and it does this to produce functional proteins. And then, of course, those proteins combine to produce irreducibly complex molecular machines. And none of this could happen if it weren't for the fact that our universe was exquisitely fine-tuned uh, in its universal laws and constants to allow for life to exist. But where in our experience do things like language-based digital code, computer-like programming, machine-like structures, or sort of this uh, high degree of fine-tuning that we see in the laws and constants of physics. Well, in all of our experience, when we see these kinds of things in the world and we know where they came from, they only come from one known source, and that's intelligence. Only intelligence produces language-based code. Only intelligence produces computer-like information processing or a machine-like structures. So that's a very, uh, I would say, qualitative and intuitive case for intelligent design that most folks can understand. Yeah, and it's based on what we do know about the world and how it works and our vast and repeated experience and not, not just based on sort of a negative case against evolution, if you will. 
Exactly. Exactly. Good. Good. So you you've probably uh, I assume decided that idea is true. <laughs> you've put a lot of your personal time and energy into intelligent design, a lot of your blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak. Why why do you do it, Casey? What's why is ID worth advocating? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. And you know, I I actually found a very nice answer to that question. Something that you know you sort of have an intuition of as to what the answer is to a question, but it's nice to see someone sort of do a a study or a survey that helps back up what your what your sense was. So I always felt in my conversations with friends and skeptics over the years that one of the biggest reasons that people are doubting that whether there's a god is related to scientific evidence and whether there is actually evidence for design in nature. For me, when I was an undergraduate at UC San Diego, I was really wrestling with these questions and trying to figure out, you know, what do I believe? Is Did life evolve uh, naturally or where did we come from? And for me, it was the evidence for intelligent design that really settled that. And it was a scientific argument. It was an argument that I could make to anyone, whether they were a agnostic or an atheist or a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu. I could talk to anybody about intelligent design because we all spoke that common language of the scientific evidence in nature. I didn't have to come at them with some you know, religious presupposition that they may or may not accept. I could come to them with science and we could have a conversation. So I felt that intelligent design was a very useful tool for talking to anybody about whether there is a designer, whether we evolved through unguided mechanisms or whether we were ultimately, you know, created by God. Uh, sort of that's what I thought a good implication of this scientific evidence was. Michael Shermer, the famous atheist psychologist, did a survey a few years ago in his book, How We Believe, and he found that the number one reason given by skeptics for why they doubt the existence of God was related to the evidence for design in nature. So if you are interested in apologetics and you're, you're wondering, is intelligent design worth you know, investing time to master these arguments? Well, it's the number one reason that atheists give for basically being skeptical of faith is they don't see that there's, there's evidence for God in the world around them. And intelligent design says, actually, there's a huge amount of evidence that we did not come about by random and unguided processes, but that we were designed. And, you know, obviously, intelligent design does not specifically identify who the designer is. That's a actually a strength that it has. It's part of it being a scientific argument. But certainly the implication there is that if we were designed, you know, that's very compatible and very epistemically friendly to belief in a theistic creator. So I think that it's important for us to understand that intelligent design is addressing one of the most important worldview issues that every human being has to answer for themselves, whether we came about by chance or whether we came about by design. And so I think for that reason, ID is very important. And if it is true, then it's definitely worth advocating. Yeah, it really hits the ground where the rubber meets the road. And it's not just some you know academic issue in the ivory tower. It's something that really impacts people's views of themselves and, and the world that, that they live in today. So that's that's really critical. Well, Casey, it looks like that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being with us to talk about this great new book. I'd love to have you back to dive a little deeper into your chapter in the case for intelligent design. Thank you so much, Eric. Sounds like fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of ID the Future. The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith is available now at online retailers like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Pick up this great resource for your own library or a copy for someone in your life who could benefit from this important message about the evidence for design in the universe and this fascinating intersection of science and faith. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening.
Did you know that ID the Future reaches tens of thousands of listeners every month with the evidence of intelligent design? We need your financial support to keep ID the Future going and growing our listener base. If you value this content, please consider a gift right now. Go to idthefuture.com and click on the big donate button near the top right. That's idthefuture.com. Your donation is an investment in science, culture, and truth. That's idthefuture.com. Thanks so much for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.